0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Thank you. <coughs> Thank you, Terry. That was very flattering. Which part? <laughs> <laughs> oh, all of it. Um, okay, I will be reading a story called Speed, Speed the Cable. The title comes from a poem written by an enthusiastic American in 1858. Um, he was celebrating the fact that the first Atlantic cable had been laid and was a success for all of about four days uh, before it, um, someone on the other end decided we could boost the signal by putting more power through it and blew it out and they weren't able to pick it up again until after the Civil War. Um, this is, by the way, uh, written for the uh, anthology edited by Nick Gevers, available in the lobby, called Extraordinary Engines. Go. buy Afterward. Um, in any case, uh, this story is about um, an attempt to sabotage it and why, and the people who step in to attempt to prevent the sabotage, and this is an excerpt. My friends, it is nothing more nor less than the Tower of Babel come again. The speaker, a blind, benign-looking gentleman with white side whiskers, watched as his audience took in the statement. Consider, vile man in his pride once more seeks to demolish the natural boundaries placed for his benefit by the Almighty. He does not now say... I shall build great foundations and ascend through the stars, that the Lord may see I am exceeding great. No, he says rather. Time and space I shall make as nothing, that my voice may be heard when and where I will. My friends, you know that punishment must be handed down from on high for such sinful ambition. Yet I wonder whether any of you have truly considered the extent of our misfortune were this Atlantic cable "'Late at last!' Among those listening was a man in his mid-thirties, pleasantly nondescript in appearance. His name was Kendall. The patient observer might study him at length, failing to find anything memorable in his features, save for one singular detail. Kendall's left ear differed slightly in color from his right. Kendall shifted in his chair, wondering who had written Mr. Hargrove's speech. He'd heard it all before, when the preventers had first recruited him as a double agent, but Mr. Hargrove spoke with much more elegance now. How the dear old familiar world of our infancy vanished a little more each year, with each unthinking embrace of the machine. In the service of industry, for the pursuit of wealth, the dark satanic mills were invoked, the horrors of railway accidents, and the carnage of steam boiler explosions. Each was a little foretaste of hell, a warning from heaven, and yet that warning went unheeded. One man cried out that anything that brought them closer to the Americans, vulgar, ignorant, expectorating Americans, was a dreadful idea. Another shouted that worse was to come if the Atlantic Telegraph Company had its way. What of national security? What should happen if spies were able to transmit vital information to enemy forces instantaneously? What of the captains and crews of packet ships who might be expected to lose revenues if the Atlantic cable were laid? An elderly man stood and declared that he had made a study of galvanometers and knew for a fact that a cable of such length, passing through such a quantity of seawater, would most certainly deliver a monstrous charge from the larger continent to the smaller and incinerate the whole of Britain in the very moment the first transmission was sent. Whereupon someone pointed out that only Ireland was likely to be incinerated since the eastern end of the Great Cable was to be fixed in County Kerry. Even so,
1: said the elderly person with a sniff.
0: My friends, Mr. Hargrove raised his hands, we are all agreed in what is essential, that this infernal device must be prevented. It is true that we have suffered setbacks, but so have our opponents. Mr. Cyrus Field may pop up as often as a jack-in-the-box bearing fistfuls of dollars with which to advance his infernal design, yet we too have friends among the influential and powerful. For all that, gentlemen, we do require your support as well. Please. Give as generously as you may when the basket comes before you. A pair of gentlemen, solemn as church elders, rose and flanked the audience, sending two baskets up and down the rows of seats. This signaled an informal end to the gathering. Kendall duly dropped in a five-pound note, but remained seated until the room had nearly emptied. When Kendall rose at last, making his way to the front of the room, the astute observer would have noticed something more, for he walked with a limp. Kendall emerged from a side entrance, climbing stairs to reach the street, entering the Strand quite unseen at that hour of the night. He had not gone above five paces when a hulking shadow detached itself from the greater darkness within a colonnade following him. They had reached Whitehall before the tall man spoke, barely moving his lips. "'Much good?' "'Oh, yes,' Kendall whispered. The other nodded, saying nothing more for the duration of the journey,' which ended in Craig's court at their club. Red Kings occupied premises not nearly so imposing as those of the Athenaeum, nor as cheerful as Boodles, having as it did an undistinguished brick frontage. The two gentlemen climbed its steps, nodded to the porter who admitted them, and handed their hats to the waiter who met them within. Mr. Green, request your presence at once, sirs, said the waiter. Kendall cast a longing glance at the dining room, where clinking cutlery suggested some fortunate party was enjoying a late supper. Nevertheless, he turned and, with his companion, descended a flight of stairs. A right turn and then a left took them past a number of undistinguished-looking doors to one bearing a blank brass plate. Kendall heard the drone of a voice within and recognized the speaker as Mr. Hargrove's. Kendall's companion knocked on the door. "'Come in,' said a different voice." as Mr. Hargrove's flow of speech went on without interruption. At the desk, within a sparsely furnished study, sat a single individual glaring at the apparatus occupying one corner of the room. It resembled a glass-fronted cabinet in which could be glimpsed a rotating cylinder. From the cabinet's top protruded a brass trumpet, similar to those used by person's hard of hearing. However, it was presently sending out sound rather than receiving it. Mr. Cyrus Field may pop up as often as a jack-in-the-box bearing fistfuls of cash with which to evince his infernal design, yet we too have our friends among the influential and powerful. Now, who do you suppose he means? said Mr. Green, turning his glare on Kendall and his companion. He never said, sir, said Kendall. They listened to the rest of the conversation. When the voices receded into silence and nothing more was heard but Kendall's recorded footsteps, Green rose and took the cylinder from the cabinet. Not impossible, I shouldn't think, said Green, but it should have been unnecessary. That was your business, Bell Fairfax." Kendall's companion bowed his head in, his, in acknowledgment but said nothing. He did burn down their headquarters, sir, Kendall protested. We had every reason to believe we'd rooted them out. Green returned to his chair, scowling. So they have a diving suit, apparently, have they? Damn. This wants some planning. The Agamemnon sails on the 17th with its portion of the cable and their anticipated King Knightstown on the 5th. Ergo, he fell silent. Kendall and Belle Fairfax waited patiently until Green seemed to remember they were there. "'Go on, go to your beds. I'll have orders for you later. "'Must think this through.' "'Yes, sir,' said Kendall. "'As they were leaving, Green called after them. "'Probably have Bulger work with you on this one.' "'Kendall rolled his eyes, but said only, "'Yes, sir.' "'Neither man, having dined that evening, "'they spoke to the club's cook before he went off duty "'and were shortly sitting down to cold chicken and a bottle of hock.' "'Thanks for your indulgence,' said Kendall.' His hands were trembling as he picked up his knife and fork. Hunger weakened him oddly, had done so since the war. He was a former Marine, having served aboard the Arrogant when Bombersund was taken. There he lost an ear and his right foot to a bursting Russian shell and was shipped home, half deaf and lame, to starve. One day as he lay dizzy and sick in an alley, he'd been approached by a kindly looking man who'd offered him food and a doctor's care if he'd joined something called the Gentleman's Speculative Society. Kendall would have done anything, the man asked, for a chance of healing his suppurating wounds, and so he allowed himself to be carted off to a clean hospital bed, expecting to be visited by some sort of absurd debater's club. (laughs) Instead, he had seen doctors, a great many of them, and undergone delightfully painless surgeries that had given him a remarkably lifelike prosthetic foot and reconstructed ear. To say his hearing had been restored would be an understatement. Kendall had lain there, fascinated, listening to conversations of tradesmen three streets away from his hospital. He had listened all the more attentively, therefore, when his benefactor returned. The gentleman's speculative society was, as Kendall had been told, merely the modern name for an ancient association of philanthropists who attempted to improve the lot of mankind through scientific invention. The society owed allegiance to no kings, bent its head to no gods. Many famous men had been members down through the ages since its founding, creating ingenious devices for its agents to use in the great struggle. Universal enlightenment, an end to war, and paradise on earth were its goals. Kendall had taken his vows eagerly. The Society had granted him lodging at Red King's Club, its London home. They had fed him and clothed him. He was now, in every respect, their man. If his portion of the great struggle seemed to consist solely of spying for them, Transmitting private conversations through the mechanism implanted in his skull, Kendall had only to remember starvation and deafness to restore his sense of gratitude. The waiter had cleared the cloth, and they were rising to go to their respective rooms when Bell Fairfax said, Was there anything else said that might have identified this new friend of the preventers? Any intimation of his name? I did get the impression he's providing them with advice as well as money said Kendall. Hargrove used to maunder on at those meetings, usual old Luddite cant. Tonight he made his points much more effectively, as you heard. He's hired a writer, I suppose. Pity. Bell Fairfax shook his head. I'll tell you what's a pity is having to work with Penny Bulger again, said Kendall crossly. Belle Fairfax suppressed a smile. (coughs) Pinwell Bulger was a sailor and professional grotesque. He had taken a faceful of shot at the Battle of Navarino, which had, as he was fond of telling anyone who'd buy him a drink, spoiled his looks a bit, in that it had destroyed his right eye, cheekbone, and ear. Having been discharged, he wandered Portsmouth with a long with a bag over his head, charging a penny for a look at his injuries and tuppence to put the bag back on again. <laughs> This paid so well that the representative from the Gentleman's Speculative Society was hard-pressed to persuade Mr. Bulger to submit himself for surgical improvement, though Bulger was willing enough to become an agent when the Society's principles had been explained to him. Nor need he have worried about losing his livelihood, for the doctor's best efforts, while restoring his hearing and rebuilding his face, had been unable to make him look any less appalling. His prosthetic eye in particular, though affording him vision superior to the undamaged left one, tended to roll and stare unnervingly, and there was an audible shutter click when he took photographs with it. (laughs) To conceal this, he had developed a repertoire of ticks, tongue clacking, and muttering to himself, which also helped disguise his transmissions to the society when he sent them through the apparatus built into his ear. Muttering to himself had become something of a habit, unfortunately, doo do doo. Hello. He waved cheerily to an ashen faced pair of young gentlemen emerging from the Queenstown Telegraph Office. <laughs> Mr. Field and Mr. Wright, ain't it? They glanced at him and stopped, startled. How did you know our names? said Field, the American. Why, ain't everybody heard of the great cable? Bolger grinned at them. I was wondering if you had a berth on that Agamemnon for an able bodied seaman. Bright, the Englishman, looked him up and down in disbelief. With a brief, humorless laugh, he replied, "If she puts a sea—pardon me—if she puts to sea again, just at present, that is very much undecided, my good man. We'll persuade them. Never you fear," Field told Bright. His confident expression faded as he regarded Bulger. "I tell you what, sir, I'll bet they'd be grateful on board for someone to help them clean up." The Agamemnon's just been through some real bad weather. Now, if you'll excuse us, we have business elsewhere. Um, Why don't you go apply to the captain? Aye, aye, Yankee Doodle, said Bulger with an affable leer and went tottering away to the Agamemnon's berth. Field and Bright watched him go, shuddered, and hurried off to catch a fast boat to London where they had the formidable task of persuading the Atlantic Cable Company's board of directors not to abandon the entire project after two costly false starts. Bulger, for his part, went aboard and found the Agamemnon's first mate, only too glad to hire on someone to help clear several tons of coal out of the saloon where it had accumulated during the most recent attempt to lay cable during a catastrophic storm. Whistling merrily, Bulger stowed his duffel, grabbed a shovel, and was soon hard at work. Back to Red Kings. Nell Gwynne used these tunnels to visit Charles II, you know, remarked Green as he led them downward. Really? Kendall put a hand to his ear to muffle the echoes of the porter, who went before them with their trunks on a handcar. Bill Fairfax was obliged to carry his hat, and Ben nearly double to follow them. They had been descending steadily for the better part of a minute under vaulted brick arches. Oh, yes. Found a few interesting things when we excavated the club's cellars. We cleaned the tunnels out and extended them a bit. Quite useful, and never more so than now. Ah, here we are, gentlemen. They emerged into a vaulted chamber, brightly lit. It looked rather like a railway station full of bustling men, but they were mechanics rather than travelers, and the immense thing mounted on a track at one end of the chamber was not a locomotive engine, but a wooden fish, a life-size model of a whale, perhaps, crafted in oak and copper and brass. Plainly, the thing was meant to swim, for its track led down through the mouth of the tunnel, from which came the the unmistakable reek of the Thames. The Balena, said Green, with satisfaction. Cost us a pretty penny, I can tell you, but she's quite the finest of her kind. Considerable improvement over Bowers' vessels, and rather safer. Ah, and here's the Spaniard. Senor Monturio? Tell him his passengers have arrived. This last remark was addressed not to the man himself, but to his clerk, who translated the remark. Senor Monturio, a slightly built gentleman with sea blue eyes, stepped forward and bowed. He said something to the clerk. Signor Monturial wishes to assure you that the Belena is ready to depart. Very good, said Green. Convey that I wish to introduce mister Kendall, our communications specialist. Kendall bowed, extending his hand, and Monturial clasped it briefly as the clerk chattered away. Let's see, did I skip a page? Oh, I devoutly hope not. And this is our diver, Commander Bell Fairfax, added Green. Monturiel looked up at Belle Fairfax, visibly startled by his height, but he bowed and said something courteous. Bell Fairfax responded in Spanish, taking his hand. Senor Monturiel is a recent recruit for our continental branch, said Green, a self-taught genius. He had the idea, we had the money, and the balayna as the result. Monturiel said something in fervent tones at some length. "'The senor wishes to express his joy upon discovering a fraternity of brothers "'who use wealth not for their own gain or to advance military objectives, "'but for the benefit of all mankind. "'He is honored and gratified to have joined your ranks "'and to have the opportunity to develop his idea in your service,' said the clerk. "'Very good,' said Green. "'May we go aboard?' "'They climbed a scaffold to step onto the upper deck, gripping brass handrails. "'The balena was the color of a violin.' golden oak under thick spar varnish, polished to a glassy shine. Her two four portholes, set with rock crystal panes, increased her resemblance to a living creature of the sea rather than a vessel. Montreal led them to a hatch in a snub tower, protruding from the top and, opening it out, indicated that they ought to descend into its interior. Kendall and Belle Fairfax climbed down sailor-like, followed awkwardly by Green. Senor Monturial and the clerk um... Descended as well, Kendall found himself on a narrow walkway that extended the length of the vessel, though his view aft was blocked by a great many brass tanks and apparatus he could not identify. Uniformed engineers paused in their preparations there to stand to attention and salute. The hull was lit by a pair of glass tubes filled with some sort of blue glowing fluid that snaked along the interior hull at roughly eye level, held in place by copper brackets, quaintly shaped to resemble starfish. "'If you gentlemen will proceed to the saloon, you will find it much less crowded,' said the clerk. "'By all means,' said Bell Fairfax, who was having to crouch once more. They sidled into the area corresponding to a ship's forecastle, and there congregated in a tight knot as the porter carried in the trunks. "'The saloon. Here are hooks for your hammocks,' said the clerk, translated from Montreal. "'Lockers for your trunks are under the benches. A sanitary convenience is in this cabinet.' You needn't fear suffocation either, said Green, waving an arm at the machinery aft. She's got an anaerobic engine. Produces oxygen, if you please. As well as driving an auxiliary steam engine to propel her. No need for sailors sweating away in close confines at a tedious cranking mechanism. Oxyhydric lamp running off a hydrogen tank so as to light her way through the depths. She'll descend 150 fathoms with ease and make 20 knots regardless of the weather. Positively swaned her way through her sea trials. The porter had finished stowing the trunks by this time. With his departure, hands were shaken all round. Green and the clerk departed. Monturial's valet, Arnaud, closed and sealed the hatch. From that moment, they were isolated from the world and could not hear the order for launch. They only felt the jolt as all hands without lent their weight to pushing the Belena down the ramp. Kendall scrambled to the starboard porthole. He looked down on bowed heads and straining backs for a moment. A lurch, and then the brick walls of the tunnel went sliding past, only to vanish in universal darkness as the balena entered the water. Her engines churned alive with a vibration that entered Kendall's spread palms where they pressed her inner hull. He felt a thrill of mingled terror and glee. Kendall turned from the window. Monturiel and Arnaud had gone aft, Monturiel to the helm amidships, and Arnaud to assist the, ase- the engineers. Orders were shouted in Spanish. Suddenly, the black beyond the portholes lit to a dim green. Bathed in the blue light from the illumination tubes, Bell Fairfax had sat down and was straightening his back at last. For God and St. George, he remarked to Kendall with a wry smile. And if you want to know how the rest of it goes, buy the book.